Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skirt, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the delightful Edith Barabash. Edith played a vital role in helping Mike Lanigan transition his multi-generational cattle ranch into farmhouse garden animal home, a sanctuary that provides a safe haven for the animals and also educates the general public in feeling compassion for these animals. In this interview, Edith shares her story and also Mike's transition from rancher to sanctuary owner, their experience of creating that change and also some of the innovative fundraising methods. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did and be sure to check out our social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube where you can also find the series in video format. Thank you so much for joining us today, Edith. Uh, for our viewers watching all around the world, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Edith Barabash. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Farmhouse Garden Animal Home. We are an animal rescue in Uxbridge, Ontario in, in Canada. Um, and about four years ago, we converted the sanctuary from a fully working cattle ranch. Um, so it's been a long transition, difficult at times, but here we are now taking care of um, 29 cows. We have a bunch of hens, a rooster, a donkey, a horse. Um, it's really a full house and, and I love what we do at the sanctuary. It's, it's really great and so fulfilling. Oh, it's fantastic. And, you know, we love following you and, and we'll certainly talk about that for our viewers, you know, where they can all uh, follow what you're doing as well. And, you know, one of the most rewarding things for any vegan who I'm sure is watching is knowing that they've inspired somebody else to stop contributing to animal suffering. But in your case, however, you said, you know, you're the co-founder, but you actually managed to inspire a third generation cattle rancher to stop slaughtering animals and transform that farm into a vegan animal sanctuary. So um, I guess we should probably start this story from when you and Mike first met. Um, you were a teenager helping out at the local market. So could you tell us about those days and how it all began? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm still at the farmer's market now, so I know I still remember very well how it was when we just started. Um, I was... I think I was like 15 years old or so, might have been a little younger, um, and I started uh, working at a local farmer's market near my house for Mike, um, and Mike at the time, well, like like now, he was growing a bunch of organic vegetables, basically anything that grows in Ontario will grow on his farm, um, and he was also raising um, chickens, pigs, and cows for, for meat to sell at the market, and I was there working, helping him sell these these things at the time, um, and yeah, it was it wasn't until four years ago, so like definitely like a good few years into me working at the farmers market with him that he decided to take on this transition. So um, things, I mean, things are are really different now, but also much of it is the same at the farmers market. We're, we're still there selling organic uh, fruits and vegetables um, every single week. Um, so yeah, it's it not, not much has changed in that aspect, except now the customers who want meat um, cannot get it from Mike. <laughs> oh, well, that's, um, it's so wonderful how he's made that transition. And I know in previous interviews, you've spoken about that sort of defining moment for you um, which really sort of cemented it all with, you know, making that choice um, to rather than being a plant-based for health reason to uh, go more towards veganism, you know, and really adopting those ethical approaches. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, the time that you accompanied Mike um, to take some of those animals to slaughter for the last sort of time? Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned at the time, I did consider myself vegan slash plant-based. I was kind of like, dabbling in it for health reasons primarily, and I hadn't really connected with the ethical aspect of veganism at that point yet. Um, but I was starting to connect a lot more with, with the animals at the sanctuary, uh, or at the, at the farm at the time, I guess, um, because I was in charge of uh, feeding them, making sure that they were comfortable before, you know, we had our morning and evening chores that we did with the animals. So I, I did start to connect with them and I was 
off into the field and, and feed them like excess cabbage leaves and stuff when whenever people weren't looking. So I had these little moments where I was connecting with them and realizing that animals really are so special. Um, and then, yeah, one day Mike did ask me to accompany him to the slaughterhouse. Um, and, and it wasn't to like watch the animal being slaughtered. It was just to help him load the animal onto the trailer and bring him there and unload him. Um, and I didn't anticipate it being as, as difficult as it was for me. Um, but like from the get go, like first thing in the morning, like we knew, well, I, I could tell right away that this cow did not want to go on to, um, well, I guess he was, he was a bull, uh, didn't want to go on to, um, the truck. And then when we got there, we had a really hard time getting him off of it. Um, and we had to kind of, I mean, I won't go into the details, but it was emotionally difficult getting him into his stall at the slaughterhouse. And um, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that the slaughterhouse is the highest standard of like humane, humane slaughter, right? Um, so I didn't think it would be that difficult for me, but um, we got there and we finally, like this cow was, was in his stall. He calmed down a little bit. And then I had a chance to really take in my surroundings and I realized how heavy this place was. I, I kind of took a little walk around and there was this huge room just filled with, with animals. They looked like babies to me. These just, just a bunch of like sheep and goats and alpacas. And they were all just kind of silently standing there. Um, it was a really shocking moment for me and one that I think was a defining moment in my journey towards veganism. I can imagine that's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's so powerful. And thank you for sharing that. And um, as someone who spent a lot of time around uh, cattle myself, um, I can totally picture and understand what you meant about the, the fear and how, you know, that animal would not have wanted to go on the truck because cows are such social creatures, aren't they? They don't like being on their own. They don't like being separated from, from their friends, from their packs. So, um, yeah, that that's really poignant and powerful thank you um something you know I know you said you didn't witness the actual slaughter and, and but just being there is is heavy enough and you get that that feeling that whole sort of eerie sense that you know the animals know that something isn't right so having been that close to it all um when you know we all hear the expressions of things like grass-fed is better free range I only buy this you know and humane slaughter and as you say this particular slaughterhouse was about the most humane that you could get um, in what they were doing so when people use the expression humane slaughter now what does that invoke within you well the first thing I think about is all of the, the beautiful animals at the sanctuary who are enjoying their lives um, you know, on pasture and enjoying like all of the beautiful things that a cow would enjoy. And, and the thought of cutting that short for something as simple as palate pleasure as, as wanting a meal is to me unfathomable. Um, but I mean, even back then when Mike was raising animals for slaughter and um, again, everything was organic, the highest standard of humane, humane meat. Um, the animals were essentially babies when they were sent off. Like this bull that we that we had loaded onto the onto the trailer was probably no more than two or three years old. And when you look at a lifespan of a cow, which is it could I mean we have a cow now named Martha who's eighteen years old and hopefully will be with us for for, for at least a few more years. Um, you think like what is two three years old? It's a tiny fraction of of a life that could be spent enjoying right and 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 like who are we to decide when they when they die um yeah it's something that i i thought a lot about after that visit to the slaughterhouse and um yeah it's all there's a lot of humane washing humane washing that goes on i like to call it um when it comes to selling meat um and and people unfortunately often fall for it without realizing what it really entails like as a slaughterhouse is a slaughterhouse no matter how humane they call it an animal comes in whole and comes out chopped into pieces it's just nothing great could really go on in there 
Yeah, definitely. When you put it like that, I think one thing, uh, one of our friends drew a, a comparison recently that really kind of summed it up quite well. I think, you know, we like to tell ourselves that these animals had a, a you know, it was, it was a shame. Yeah. But you know, they, they had a long and happy life, you know, they were, they were free roaming pasture and all that kind of thing. And, and one of our friends compared it to, it's like hitting someone with a car that's running, you know, that's going across a pedestrian crossing, you know, you might hit, <laughs> you know, they look happy enough, you know, yeah. they're just going about their day. They're quite happy, but you know, and it's that's a um, shame. They had a, they had a happy life though. You know, that was just unfortunate. It's, it's like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. And, and if anything, it, it, it almost seems like the ultimate betrayal, right? Like this animal was so well cared for and trusts you and loves you and, and looks, looks to you to take care of them. Um, so it, it seems, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's better or worse, but it seems equally mm. sadistic almost, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. So, um, so one thing that's come up quite a few times um, during the filming of this series is um, leading by example. And on the farm, you know, um, Mike's gone through a bit of an individual transform uh, transformation as well. But just having you there, you know, on your other start, you know, your plant-based journey and then progressing towards a more vegan journey. Um, how do you feel that sort of helped in getting Mike, you know, to sow those seeds from turning an organic beef farm into sort of a, you know, a vegan animal sanctuary? Yeah, there were a lot of conversations, a lot of like sharing thoughts because like we were both kind of going on this journey together, right? Like, yeah, by the time he had made his transition, I had already been vegan for quite a while, but um, I was always kind of formulating my ideas on the matter and, and talking to him about it. And um, like I would see him every week at the farmer's market. And also I, I did a few internships at his farm. So I would live at the farm for a while. Um, and yeah, we were always talking about, um, I, I remember like we had this conversation once that I think really hit home for him about, um, like there was a dog on the, uh, at the farm at the time named Buddy and we were kind of thinking about how, you know, the cows on his farm are just as much just like are equally loved as this dog Buddy, but like one of them, like the cows meet this terrible end and Buddy's going to continue to be loved and cherished. Um, so he, I think it really hit home for him when we had that conversation of like, well, what's the difference? Like really, when you, when you look at it, what's the difference between the dog and the cow? They're both on the farm. They're both loved, but the ending is so different. So many years of these conversations led up to, um, our transition to a sanctuary. It wasn't really an overnight thing. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. Cause I know, um, especially in my life, um, some of your hardest critics, you know, by just having those sort of those conversations and slowly building up to it can really end up changing their mind. Like my mum uh, was one who, yeah, was always, um, she used to poke a little bit of fun, you know, when we first went vegan. And then um, over time, you know, just through having those conversations and sharing um, what was the thought process for ourselves, you know, all of a sudden it clicks with her and then she, she goes with it. And yeah. it's absolutely wonderful to be able to have those conversations. Definitely. Um, yeah, you're right. I forget that, you know, she's such a staunch advocate for, for animals now. And it's amazing to think that she was once that person that commented bacon and, you know, lamb chops and all that. So um, just proof that like, like Mike as well, you know, anybody can change. How did that make you feel having spent that time with Mike and had these conversations, you know, when you first heard of his plans um, and to have been given such an instrumental role in, in being part of that change? It must have been so exciting. It must have been a great feeling. Yeah, well, I did not see it coming at all. Like, it was a complete, I, when we had these conversations, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that a third generation rancher would ever think about changing his entire business model in this way. So, like, that wasn't at all ever my intention to, like, convert him or anything like that. It was, it was totally just sharing our thoughts with each other and talking. Um, so, when I did get, like, I, it was actually, like, I was out of the country at the time and I just got, like, a text message from him um being like oh like I have you know I'm I have this like idea to discuss with you like I'm thinking about making some changes and I was like okay like I don't know what you're talking about but all right and then and then I got back and he sat me down and we had this discussion it was I was floored like I it was hugely exciting like I was 
like my mind was just going a mile a minute, like thinking of the ways that we could do this and 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 how to fundraise and everything. I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into at the time. It was like pure excitement. And the second he said it, I was like, all right, I got this. We're going like overnight. I was like, that's it. No more animals. We're going to slaughter. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, I, I did not know what I was getting myself into, I guess is the point of that, but it was hugely exciting for me. Oh, that's wonderful. I guess uh, when you first got that text message, where it was like, Kate, of ah, oh, he wants to maybe grow beets this year. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a little dramatic, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, whenever people hear about your story, I know um, it always comes up a lot, you know, it's like, how, how, how does someone go about, you know, transitioning a farm from, you know, producing, um, well, raising livestock, you know, to then just focus them purely on plants. And, um, knowing the farming industry a bit more from the inside uh wondering you know was there a process of sort of destocking before going towards the sanctuary that mike did or was it just a case of you know today there's no more uh, no more slaughter going to happen or was it because we know there is a huge expense when it comes to you know running sanctuaries and trying to keep because these animals are normally only alive for maybe two three years and then when we keep them alive for 20 you know um, there's a huge amount of cost. So was there any sort of process in that um, to getting ready towards being a sanctuary? No, no, essentially. Well, we always kind of laugh that most other sanctuaries start off with like this big reserve fund and then slowly like they're very calculated about how many animals they take in. And we started off with like over 20, 20 cows, which is hugely expensive and zero money. Um, so it was completely backwards from what people, like, it was very, very unconventional. Um, and I couldn't think of, of any other sanctuary that had really started out quite with nothing in the way that we have. Um, so the beginning, so actually when we had just, I guess, okay. So essentially we, we started things off with me filming a video of Mike talking about his ideas and what he wants to do. And at that point it was all very tentative. It was like, well, if we do this, would you support it? Like, should we do it this way or that way? And the video is still up online. Um, and it, it's, it's got quite a, quite a few views now. It's, it's really cool to look back at it. Um, and at that point, like we had no idea what we were doing. We're like, all right, well, I don't really know what a sanctuary entails, but like we could do it this way. And one of the, <clears throat> one of the bulls at the time uh, was actually booked in to go to the slaughterhouse. Um, and, and I, I kind of, I knew this, like he was already booked to go since before Mike had talked to me. Um, and I think it was going to be only a couple of days away. And so I had this like huge scramble to do this initial fundraiser. I was very, very determined to, to not let that happen. Um, and Mike, Mike thought that it was going to happen. He thought it was going to be like a slow transition to the sanctuary. Um, but I was like, no, like the second he told me he doesn't want to do it, like that's it, we're done. Um, so we had this initial big fundraiser and we were very lucky because it was huge. It was so amazing. Um, the money kind of came pouring in overnight. It wasn't like huge amounts to sustain us for years, but it was definitely like more than enough to, to give us a bit of a, a start. Um, so having seen that, I think really reassured Mike, um, and helped him realize that there is a community that will back us and we can continue this. Um, so that's kind of how we started off. It was really this video that kickstarted things. Um, yeah, at that point we didn't have a website, we didn't have social media, we had nothing, just this video out there and, and people just kept asking us like, how do we support you? How do we help you start this? So we were very lucky in that sense. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm so so glad you're able to save the bull there, you know, because, yeah, yeah I suppose um, when I often think of uh, the farms, I'm used to the New Zealand ones where they have, you know, uh, 200 uh, cattle can be a small um, out here, you know, they might have thousands. So, um, yeah, it's good to have that smaller number and then to be able to care for them and, yeah. Keep them all, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. definitely, it's, it's one thing um, people don't consider as well. Over here, we get... Um, people saying, oh, there are, you know, 54-day calves, four-day-old calves or 204-day-old calves uh, that are going to go to slaughter. And, you know, the sanctuaries have got to save them. The sanctuaries have got to save them. But it, it's not 
you know, if you want to keep an animal for life, that is going to cost a hell of a lot. You know, you're not looking, those four day old calves are not going to stay four day old size. They are going to grow, you know, to a lot and they're going to need feeding forever. So, you know, it's fantastic that you had so much support from the start. Um, you know, we've spoken that you also are um, organic um, vegetable growers and much of the farming that we see these days is, you know, monoculture where you sort of grow one particular crop and, and farm that intensively. But from what we understand, you guys grow a little bit of everything. So, um, you know, is that part of your success on, on running the farm as it is today that, you know, you're growing those vegetables on a larger scale and, and doing the markets and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, so sustainability and environmentalism is hugely important to Mike. He's always been, um, he's always grown organically, um, even before it was like a thing when nobody really understood what it was or why he's even doing it. He was always pulled towards that. Um, so when, it was really interesting when I was doing my, my farming internships there, I learned so much about what sustainable agriculture really is and how important it is to the farm and the land and, and the wildlife and everything. Um, and Mike's farm is one of the only ones around that, that is quite like that. Um, but it's cool. We have, um, we're on like a, a rotation system. So, so every, I can't remember exactly how many years, but it's like every few years or every year things shift, right? So if you have like beans in one spot one year, they won't be in the same spot the next year. So the soil uh, the things that get leached from the soil will get regenerated in the next year. Um, so it's a really cool system. He has it all figured out and calculated and knows far more than I ever will about agriculture. But I, it's it's really inspiring to see someone who's so passionate about sustainability and, and really lives it. And it's growing the way he does is not the profitable thing to do at all, by no means. Um, but he continues to do it and he's not going to give up his morals for anything. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Well, that's wonderful. And oh, sounds like an amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah, because um, regenerative um, agriculture, you know, and regenerative farmers are starting to become. It's sort of one of the buzz things that's starting to come out now in the agricultural sort of industry, and that's you know, as you say, you know, getting back, regenerating the soil, bringing it back. But um, a lot of farmers, especially out here in New Zealand, who are now. Um, the few who are starting to give up the stock, you know, are starting to see, you know, they're starting to see worms in the soil again. They're starting to see the, the black carbon rich soil at the top there. And it, it's so wonderful that, you know, we can really restore these lands by, you know, keeping things moving. And um, did, um, did Mike find any benefits to, you know, when he stopped sending the animals to slaughter and um, just keeping them on the farm, did he see any benefits to sort of the, uh, the soil and the production quality, you know, just having them uh, mooching around? Well, the beauty of having the sanctuary the way that it is, is that we still get the benefits to the land without harming the animals. So, so um, we still use the manure to fertilize the garden, because what else are you going to do with the ridiculous amounts of manure that, like, I can't even explain to you how much manure we have to do with. It's, uh, but yeah, but it, it's really good for the garden and having a grazing herbivore on the land is, is hugely beneficial to to the farm obviously not i mean we know that there's a lot of damage that that having too many cows can do um on, like there's a lot of damage that too many cows can do to um to farmland um but having it done on kind of like a crop rotation system the way that he does and and making sure that the land has some time to regenerate before the cows get on the land again um is actually hugely beneficial so um, not much has changed in that respect. Um, the land was really healthy before and it still is healthy now, but the beauty of it is that we don't have to slaughter the animals to do that. So I think it's a really cool model. Definitely, definitely. And um, yeah, like you said, that whole herbivore manure thing, you know, that uh, it just takes it to that extra next level as well, doesn't it? Oh, like, well, God, the manure we deal with. <laughs> Um, in a previous life, um, I have to admit, I myself um, worked on um, dairy and beef farms here in New Zealand for 18 years. So I can really understand some of the struggles that Mike went through when it came to doing that whole about turn in the industry that we were so indoctrinated in. Um, can you tell us about some of the backlash that he encountered from others around him for daring to, you know, now decide he was going to save lives instead and not kill animals for food? Yeah, 
Yeah, so where the sanctuary is, is really deep in a farming community. So there isn't much like vegan or animal rights influence in that area at all. Um, and a lot of farmers around did initially see it as kind of an attack on them, even though that wasn't at all what Mike meant to do. Um, Mike is, is the kind of person who wants to get along with everybody. He would never want to alienate, especially your neighbors, right? You we have some neighbors who've helped us out, like other beef farmers who have donated hay to us, who have, who have stopped to help us with other things as well. So, so we, it was really important to him to not alienate the people around him and to, to retain that community of people who he had grown up around. Um, but that being said, a lot of them did take it the wrong way. Um, so that was just, I think, something that he realized was going to be part of the transition. Not everybody would be on board with it. Um, but the vast majority of people, once, you know, after talking to him and hearing his point of view, realized that, yeah, this was his decision. It doesn't mean that he's anti-farmer, which is something that some people had said at first. Um, and, and yeah, I, I like to think that things have settled down now and um, we have a nice community around us that is really supportive of what we do. Um, so, yeah, there, there was initial backlash. Um, also from, from his family, it wasn't easy because it was a huge transition for everybody, right? His, his sons worked at the farm at that time. Um, so doing this kind of, at the time, it seemed like such a sudden shift. Um, had a lot of repercussions on you know his community and family and everything but it, it took time right and uh we're, we're happy where we are now oh well that, that's um that's wonderful to hear and it's um yeah it's got to be expected when you go against the grain that there's going to be some sort of resistance and you know so good on you guys for like pushing through that and carrying on stop the podcast we'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners Animal Hero Kids. Animal Hero Kids are fostering a culture of empathy and kindness in children and teens by encouraging and recognizing compassionate and courageous acts to help all species of animals. Animal Hero Kids also offer complimentary, interactive, humane education programs highlighting stories of rescue and aid of animals in need. Do you know a young person who is a hero for the animals? Sign them up to this global movement. Head on over to animalherokids.org to learn more. Now back to the podcast. The core focus of this series is to help vegans advocate better and um, to also be more active in the movement and also understand the different methods of how we can uh, advocate. So having seen it firsthand, um, what would be your top tips when, you know, advocating when it comes to dealing with farms and farmers, you know, how can we approach them better? I think the reason I was successful is because I wasn't really trying to do it. It's it's hard. It's hard because when when you're a farmer and you're so entrenched in that lifestyle, it, it's it's everything to you, right? It's the way you were born and raised. It's your whole belief system. So it's it's really hard when it comes from a place of like if you're trying to convince them of something. I I don't know if that would be successful in many cases, just because. Um, the walls are going to go up so quickly because it, it, it's, it's your whole lifestyle. Um, I think understanding where the other person is coming from, the point that they're at is not the same point that you're at. And, and finding that compassion and finding that mutual understanding and taking it from there is really important. Um, Mike always says that it's, it's the fact that I was like a, a quiet voice and I wasn't trying to convince him or, or like berate him for what he's doing. Just like a, a quiet voice explaining my thoughts. Um, that's what he said kind of got to him. That being said, there's no, I don't think there's one good way to do activism. I think different things work for different people. Um, and I would, I would never think that like my way is su superior because I mean, it happened. I was very lucky that it worked for Mike, but I don't know about other farmers. Yeah, that, that's so true. And um, I, that's some brilliant advice, you know, mm -hmm. about trying to understand the mindset because, well, as we know in Jackie's case especially, um, there's a, a, so much pressure that farmers are under already. There's uh, the living on the farm, you know, you're dealing with problems every day from so many different angles. So it's not a case of, you know, mm -hmm. making an excuse for it, but it's a case of if you can understand that mindset first, 
we have a, we already have a foot in, you know, and mm -hmm. then we can work around it. And it also leads back to um, a lot of our outreach activists that we've had on the series speak about the Socratic method and that's um, understanding, yeah, how people are already thinking mm -hmm. and then using that to then um, try and align their, um, their actions with their, their ethics, you know, and yeah. I think in a lot of cases with farmers as well, there is a, um, that issue of, you know, that they've, they have some of the ethics there. It's just that the actions have been taught to be so mm -hmm. different, you know, because all that, those years of um, entrenchment. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, like in Mike's case as well, you know, and often over here, you're going against your family and generations of, you know, it's, it's like in their eyes, it's like you're going against everything that, you know, your, your, your forefathers worked for, which is, yeah, it's quite confronting. And I still have a lot of uh, friends that are in the farming industry, you know, I guess I, I don't have a lot to do with them anymore, but it's like, okay, you're still the same people, you know, that you were before I went vegan. And there was once upon a time that I was at that point, just like you. So it doesn't mean all of a sudden that, you know, I look at you as a different person and that I don't like you anymore. I'm just, I'm not a fan of what you're doing and I wish you had a different job, but you know, <laughs> it doesn't mean that we, I'm not gonna like you. So, um, you know, I mean, that's just one of the, the stumbling blocks that um, that we face, you know, in bridging that gap between between farmers and, um, you know, those of us who are at a different stage. But um, another one of the stumbling blocks that, that I've found as well is that, um, and a lot of vegans, is when we want to present our case to farmers, we don't have the solution or the relevant farming knowledge. So it's like, stop what you're doing. Okay, well, what do I do? Oh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> you know? So is there anywhere that you can suggest or that you know of for people where they can go to learn more about helping farmers like Mike to transition so that we can sow some seeds and say, well, actually, did you know that this is going on? Or perhaps you could look at doing this. Um, you know, is there any resources or, or organizations that you could recommend they look into? Yeah, definitely. Um... I personally do not have all the answers, but there are other really good organizations that are doing great work and researching how to help farmers transition. So there's um, an organization called Farm Transformers that we had done an interview with. I, um, I talked to them a few years back and I think they're still, they're still uh, working on it and doing some great work. There is um, the Transformation Project, which is something that's starting up right now and I think they've got kind of a website going and they're going to be helping farmers and showing them examples and connecting them maybe with other farmers too and um I think the last one there might be more but the last one I can think of now is the rancher advocacy program um which was started up by um I believe it was started by Renee Kingsonen from uh Rowdy Girl Farm Sanctuary in Texas um so yeah, she's doing great work with that. And I think she's already helped quite a few farmers transition. Um, I don't know if any of them have really done the whole like farm to sanctuary model, just because that is a whole different beast in itself that is very challenging. Um, but transitioning from animal agriculture to plant agriculture is something that is really cool. And I think having the resources out there is so important. Well, thank you for sharing those and we'll be, um, be sure to try and link those uh, in the description when we do the video. Um, so it's uh, Farmhouse Garden Animal Home is the name of the sanctuary and it, it's now well established, which is actually wonderful. We love watching your content uh, when it comes up on Facebook and stuff. Um, but what I'd be interested to know is what are some of the main issues you face uh, now with running the sanctuary? A huge issue for us is always fundraising. Um, it I mean, when you're there at the sanctuary and you're with the animals, everything is kind of beautiful and amazing and you love them and you're like, this is the best place in the world. And then you're like, wait a second, we need to raise $40,000 a year to take care of them. Um, and on top of that, nobody's working there full time, right? Like I'm a full time student with another job. Um, Mike has his farm that he's running full time. Um, all of our volunteers have other full-time things happening so it's it's just it's challenging but it's a lot of compassionate people coming together and giving everything that they can to the sanctuary um, but it's always a hurdle right because we're always we're always trying to reach those benchmarks and, and fundraise enough and get those monthly donors and try to reach people who are content and, and have them connect with the animals 
so that's probably our number one struggle always. Um, and of course, there's never a dull moment at the sanctuary itself too, right? Like now we have an, a pink eye outbreak amongst the cows, poor things, but like they're all being treated, of course, but it's just every day you wake up and it's like something new, right? So there's, there's little things, there's always something to think about. Um, but I mean, it's hugely outweighed by the, by the benefits always. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, um, I know with the, um, the turnover of sort of volunteers, um, we visited quite a few sanctuaries out here in New Zealand and, uh, one in particular, you know, they're, they're always having to retrain people because they've got, uh, people coming in they're moving on and then, yeah, teaching them what these animals like and watch out for this one. This one's cantankerous, you know, you're constantly sort of retraining and stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine um, all the problems you must have to deal with on a daily basis. But, yeah, it's so wonderful to, you know, even when visiting, just just see that love and compassion with the animals. Definitely. And we'll talk about some of your um, awesome fundraising initiatives uh, in just a tick. But I mean, one of, one of the core focuses of, of your sanctuary in particular appears to be, well, it is <laughs> education. And um, like Gareth said, we've met quite a few sanctuary owners here in New Zealand. And this is always their ultimate goal, what they're aiming towards to educate um, and particularly in educating the younger generation. So can you tell us about the importance of not only caring for the animals, but also educating people about these wonderful animals, their, their species and the atrocities that go on with them? Yeah, well, this was a bit of a learning curve for me too, because when we started off the sanctuary, my initial goal was like, well, how do I save as many animals as possible? And then you very quickly realize that that's not practical. Um, we don't have the funds, we don't have the space. And so I think every sanctuary, owner kind of thinks well how do i maximize the number of animals i'm going to help and and it's always through education and it's through connecting people with the animals at your sanctuary and helping them um realize how how they are sentient and intelligent and um they're i mean they're so unique right every animal has a different personality and it's by having them there physically at the sanctuary and seeing it for themselves that I think sanctuaries make the most difference, not necessarily by like taking animals in. Um, so that that's why education has always been one of our main pillars. It's been one of a, the main the main focus points of the sanctuary. Um, and I think over over the past year, we've really it's been hard now with COVID nineteen because we can't have people out. But but every event we do, um, you know, every uh, like all of our social media strategy, everything is kind of like, well, how do we connect them to the animals um, and help them realize how special they really are? Yeah, one um, one brilliant project that we've loved watching is um, your humane education classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, that is absolutely wonderful. Can you share with our viewers a little bit about um, what it is and um, how you came about while well, doing it? Yeah, so we have this this beautiful volunteer family. Uh, it's Tanya, Mike, Odie, and Tilda. Um, Tanya and Mike are, are, are married and their kids are Odie and Tilda. Um, and they've been volunteering for a while now at the sanctuary. And Tanya's a teacher and is so great with kids and, and has run a lot of humane education programs at her school. Um, so she she thought that she could take this on and, and do something great with it. And, and she did, that the whole family really together to do something really cool and we're we're um, starting up a summer camp too um, so it's really cool to be able to teach children how to be kind and, and to respect animals and uh, even though we can't do that in person now Tanya did Tanya and Mike and Odie and Tilda did such a fantastic job um, helping people especially kids make that connection online <laughs> Oh, it's been brilliant. Yeah, we've, you know, right through the whole COVID thing, we've been watching you guys and it's it's just been brilliant. It's been so great. And especially when this is such a time for people to, to learn and to have that time to, yeah, just make connections, learn new things. And it's such a valuable thing that you guys are doing. That's great how technology is helping to keep us connected um, despite, you know, being distanced. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've already mentioned, you know, financial support is, is the key to keeping any sanctuary going. And you and the Farmhouse Garden Animal Home team have come up with some very clever and inventive ways, um, you know, raising 
funds um, during these particularly challenging times. Can you tell our viewers about Buckwheat and her very special role in the corporate sector? <laughs> yeah, Buckwheat's had a bit of a career change recently. Um, yeah, Buckwheat's been the source of quite a bit of fame for us <laughs> recently. Um, she is so special. She's when when we when we had the idea originally of doing these like Zoom meeting crasher um, like this this fundraiser, we immediately thought of Buckwheat because she loves the human interaction. She loves being with volunteers. We thought like which animal would, would really thrive off of doing this, um, and I mean Buckwheat would be around people all day every day if she could. Um, she gets tons of treats. She she'll follow us around. Every time she sees us, she's like, "Hey, you're back. Let's do another one." Like she always kind of pops up and wants more treats. Um, so it's been really cool to to work with her and to to show the world how special and unique she really is. Um, and what we've been doing is having her join people's um, corporate, not only corporate meetings. They've there been some birthday parties and and some just family gatherings um but yeah she's she's been in a lot of really fancy corporate boardrooms too it's it's been very interesting a lot of companies that like we wouldn't expect would want um uh you know like a, a, me a meeting with with animals from a sanctuary but uh, again on the point of education it's been a really cool way to reach people who otherwise would never be exposed to animal rights or to sanctuary animals at all um yeah it, it's it's kind of our way of like like planting those seeds in, in people's minds because they're originally sucked in by the idea of like oh cool cute donkey gets to like show up on my zoom meeting um and then we start talking about our transition to a sanctuary and then we show them the cows and we talk a little bit about um uh, like sometimes they'll ask if, if we get milk from the cows and then we could talk a bit about the dairy industry right like there's there's these little tidbits of information that we can drop while still keeping it fun and, and light for people because that's what they're looking for um but it's been a really great way not just to fundraise but to educate we've we've talked to probably like thousands of people with this fundraiser at this point that's absolutely that fantastic so like yeah it's oh it's just great you have that sort of you know almost guerrilla activism in that that fact that fact that they're coming for something else and then it's sort of just like oh if you're asking the questions here you go yeah. um we'll have to do a live uh live feed with buckwheat on, <laughs> on vegan fta you know? <laughs> that would be great get her in on it he's a pro at this point yeah i bet because yeah. <laughs> actually um it was something for me i never realized just how um how loving and sweet donkeys could be because for so many years I always thought of Winnie the Pooh and sort of Eeyore, this sort of depressed donkey. Um, it wasn't until we had to look after um, a couple of donkeys for a friend that, you know. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, so I, Riley is my best mate now, the, the donkey in uh, the Cafferty Coast. And yeah, I can't wait to go see him again and give him a hug because they're, they're just such sweet and they're so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's such an innovative way mm. to fundraise, and I hope that some of our um, some of our viewers today, you know, who either support sanctuaries or sanctuary owners and operators, can watch this and uh, try and think of ways that they can do their own fundraising. Is there anything else that you've done at the um, the garden farmhouse um, to really, yeah, fundraise in another innovative way? Yeah, we've had to get quite creative now. Um, before COVID-19, we would just have people out for, well, we, we were pretty creative then too, I think. We had some cool events. Um, we would do our uh, monthly visiting days, but we'd also have events like like moose talk, um, where people would come out and like have some, there'd be some activities, you know, you feed the animals, you tie-dye some t-shirts, there's live music. Um, uh, I guess, yeah, our, our big challenge was how do we still fundraise without people there physically? Because a lot of times people are more inclined to donate when they connect with the animals one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so we started doing virtual visiting days. Uh, we've done two of them so far and they've been really successful and people can donate a, a virtual vegetable box 
Um, so they'll they'll donate like five or ten dollars, and then we'll feed the animals on their behalf live, and, and their names are called out, and we publicly thank them, and they can see the animal eating the, the vegetables that they purchased for them. So it's been really cool. Um, we have a few cool events in the works. We're doing a silent auction soon. We have, we're gonna be doing a virtual run. Um, so people can uh, help fundraise for us through like a little marathon. Um, yeah, we're, we're constantly trying to come up with new and creative ways to fundraise. Um, and it's, it's a challenge, but it's also really fun. It's, it's actually also one of my, my favorite parts is, my favorite parts of running the sanctuary is trying to get creative and um, working with some amazing volunteers on how to put on really great events. So I, I personally love it. I think it's really challenged us and helped us grow and it's been really great for the sanctuary. That is fantastic. It's, um, yeah, I wish we lived closer so we could be part of it all as well. <laughs> oh. Well, now virtually you can be part of everything. Yeah, I want to feed somebody a carrot. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of viewers out there thinking, right, I want to do this. It's, it's such a wonderful, you know, um, idea. And, and it's great seeing, I guess, which which ideas resonate with people the most and which which really work and, and you know, what makes... Yeah, always a hit or miss, right? Like, we never know if something's going to stick, but you just play around with different things and see what people like. Definitely, definitely. And those, those quirky things like having uh, buckwheat, you know, come and, and crash your, your business meeting. It's just absolutely, you know. And who would have thought, right? Like we had no idea it would take off the way it did. But we've, we've sat in like almost, I think, 150 meetings at this point. And we've been in like McLean's Magazine and uh, like all of the, just like a whole host of different um, news, like media outlets. Um, yeah, we didn't think that it would take off like this, but Buckwheat has spread so much joy into people's lives. It's it's really cool. We're very thankful. Oh, bless it. It's awesome. And, um, you know, we, we've sort of uh, talked about this, um, you know, touched on it briefly, but at, at the sanctuary, you know, the animals do get to full, live out their full life expectancy, like like Mother Nature intended. And for many of our viewers, vegan or non-vegan, you know, they may not understand how long these species are actually naturally capable of living. So all too often, you know, like we've said, the the animals that people eat are still in their infancy in comparison to their true life expectancy. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned about the cows and calves and, and um, you know, the age that they're, they're normally sent to slaughter, which is, you know, basically you're looking at toddlers really, aren't you? Which is just hideous. But, you know, you mentioned that you have chickens at the farm that are 25 years old, you know, and compared to the chickens that we normally see people eat, which are six weeks old, it's absolutely insane. How great is it to see the animals reach their old age and become even more endearing or cantankerous as it may be? It's, it's beautiful. It's so fulfilling. And it really... Um yeah like solidifies our commitment to animal rights and and wanting to help more animals and um i mentioned martha one of our old cows who's now i mean she's she's getting really old she's having trouble walking she needs like pain medication she has arthritis and um i think on one hand that it's it's difficult to to make sure that all of her needs are met and we're always trying to m make life as comfortable as possible for her um, but it's also so beautiful. Like, where else are you going to see an animal just just growing old and being taken care of? You know, in, in her golden years. So, <laughs> yeah, we we love her so much. She's so sweet, and we're really thankful that we've had such a so such a long period of time to enjoy with her. Yeah, it's um, it's one thing a lot of us see, you know, with our cats and dogs. You know, as they get old, you know, like they their personalities grow even further, you know, and it's it's just so wonderful to see them, um, yeah, fully fully live out that that life. Yeah, and um, like, she's like everyone's grandma now, right? She's so <laughs> she's so cute. <laughs> well, um, we're gonna finish on a um. One of a, it might be quite a controversial question. It might be a bit of a hard nut to crack, but um, it's something that comes up uh, more too often in vegan groups lately, especially with some of the stuff that's coming out recently about, you know, farmers abusing their animals and such. And it's the case that everyone says that, you know, farmers don't love their animals. And um, 
it, it's a hard one because knowing a bit more about the the inside, as we touched on earlier, the quite often there is that ethics, and it's just that the actions are so so warped and misaligned with that ethics because of all these years of being indoctrinated. Do you feel, um, you know, having seen Mike from start to sort of uh, finish, do you believe that he loved his animals, you know, before um, he create, well, helped to create the sanctuary? Yeah, I, it's, I think it's really hard for us as vegans to wrap our head around how that kind of love could even be possible. But he, he truly believed and, and believes now still that he did love the animals even then. And the way that he described it was that there is love towards them, but you just know what has to be done at the end and you turn off the switch in your brain and you just get the job done. And um, he says that many farmers, including him, don't like it. It's not something that's pleasant for them. But somehow it just, it doesn't detract from the love that they feel for the animals. And yeah, I've heard, I mean, at the farmer's market, we have other, other vendors that sell meat. And um, I've heard one of them saying, oh, like we treat our animals like royalty. We love them all. And, and to us, we're thinking like royalty, like you literally send them to die. But again it's about meeting people where they're at right and and realizing where they're how they were raised and and what kind of world view they're they're immersed in and to them it's just part of life and what has to be done and of course that's not true it doesn't have to be done but um yeah i do think it's it's i i, I don't know if it's love or if it's not love but i do think they believe that they care for the animals um not all of them, of course. There's many farm. There are many farms where the animals are abused horrifically. Um, but I think, and and Mike will will say this. Um, will very Mike very strongly believes that many of the farmers that he knows and has grown up around truly deeply care about the animals, and they just again turn off that switch in their brains. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. We um when we're talking to Dr. Clapper for one of the previous episodes, um, you know, he puts in the, the form of, you know, we're all sleeping that sleep, you know, and some of us just haven't woken up yet. And I like the, um, the analogy of sort of, it, it's sort of like um, a fire, you know, and you've got those embers there, which are the compassion and the love. It's just that with farming, it's like putting blankets on it, you know, you're smothering it and it might still be there, that ember. It's just, conditioning and just the whole practice of it is just mm -hmm. is keeping it down but once you lift off those covers you know like, yeah with Mike yeah. you know that, that fire is there and we can all really see it and I can't thank you enough for coming here and explaining a bit about the sanctuary and your journey and Mike and I can't wait to um, hopefully you know one day have a meeting with Buckwheat myself yeah and please give Mike a hug for for doing what he's doing you know it, it's so wonderful like you say we we get so indoctrinated into thinking that, oh, it's a shame, but this is how it's got to be. He's, he's proof that, you know, you, you guys are proof that it, it doesn't have to be that way at all. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Edith's work, check out Farmhouse Garden Animal Home on Facebook. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms for future episodes. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals.